Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. And to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign upon the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever and the four beasts said Amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever In popular literature, you will frequently have the question asked, what is the meaning of life? It is normally posed as a profound question that in all likelihood no one has the answer to. Interestingly enough, our children learn the answer in the very first question of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Although this truth has by now been long with me, you can spend a lifetime and should spend a lifetime contemplating those great ends, that principal end of glorifying God. Indeed, He has made all things for His own glory. And as rational creatures, we have also been called upon to find our end in the enjoyment of Him. So even as we are glorifying Him with hearts properly framed, we are enjoying Him and delighting ourselves in Him. Remember where we are in Revelation chapter 5. 
we have a spiritual view of the church. The church fulfilling its principal end, glorifying God in her worship and enjoying Him in the doing so. We find also the chief end of angels fulfilled as they worship and glorify their Creator. And now finally, as we come to the last two verses of this chapter, and really the last two verses of the introduction to the Apocalypse, we find that this is the chief end of all creation as well. As we look at the broader context of Revelation chapter 5, you will remember that the chapter opened with the scroll in the right hand of the Father, that scroll of special providence toward God's church. This prophetic history has been sealed up with seven seals. And a challenge comes from one that is described as a mighty angel is there anyone that is worthy to approach the most high to take the book out of his right hand to break the seals of it and to reveal its contents no creature is found and John mourns it turns out that John's mourning is premature one of the 24 elders comes aside to John and encourages him that although no creature has been found worthy to take the book and to reveal its contents, one has been found, not just fully man, but fully God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that great prophet, priest, and king. He is worthy to take the book. And this becomes the occasion of the worship that we have in verses 8 through 14, which we have read. First, we have that view of the church worshiping. Remember, she is portrayed as having um, hearts that have been framed to both pray and to praise, indicated through the language of the old administration. They have golden bowls full of incense and harps for praising. Since this is a spiritual view, its significance, you might say, is that their hearts have been properly tuned for the worship of God, and they are ready. And they fall down before Him. Then the new song is given, which is the content of the worship of their hearts. First, they declare Christ's worthiness. You remember that was the great question of the angel, who is worthy? And none was found worthy but Christ. And so they declare his worthiness to take the book. And then they demonstrate that worthiness with three arguments, if you will. First of all, that he was slain. Second, that he had redeemed for himself a universal church. And third, that he is, by his gracious work, able to make his people kings and priests unto the Most High God. The uh, angels then join in that chorus. 
And now we have all of the creation joining in that same chorus. So let us attend carefully to verses 13 and 14. First the 13th. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are therein heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. When we say that all creatures are now portrayed as praising we have the literary device known as personification the created things here are now being treated as if they were people and here we we certainly through uh, the multiplication of expression have all of the creation portrayed all of the inhabitants of the sky and the heavens all of the inhabitants of the earth and even under the earth and those that dwell upon or in the sea that all of these things reflect the glory of God when we discussed the praise of men and angels we talked about it as being rational and active they praise God because of what they understand about him and their praise is volitional they see his glory and they decide that they are to worship but the rest of the creation we might say passively praises and glorifies God as God's works their excellency becomes a display of his glory You might say the excellence of the work is a display of the glory of the workman. And so in that way they are said to praise. It is interesting to me that um, it's not just that they praise the one who is seated upon the throne as their creator, but they also praise the lamb as redeemer, which can seem strange. What do stars, planets, comets, bumblebees, and so on, have to do with Christ, the Redeemer. Don't lose your place in Revelation, but turn back with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body 
If you back up just a space, of course, we wouldn't say that rocks and trees and animals uh, are responsible for the fall. But since man was given dominion over the creation in his fall, all of that that was under him has entered into his misery in some manner. Of course, uh, we wouldn't say that rocks or such things uh, suffer. But uh, with the fall of mankind, death and pain were introduced into the animal kingdom and there is even some evidence that it was uh, introduced into vegetative life as well. There is a suffering that has been introduced into the creation and so we say that we live in the midst of a fallen world. And here, once again through uh, some measure of personification, Paul portrays all of the creation as groaning in this common misery and waiting, looking forward to something better. If I can borrow the language of John's apocalypse, they wait for that new heaven and that new earth when the misery to which the creation has been subjected will be lifted. So in a secondary sense, we might say that the other creatures are also secondary beneficiaries of Christ's redeeming work and the creation of a new and better world, or rather the recreation and redemption of this fallen one. On balance, we see it's altogether fitting that... These creatures are portrayed as not just glorifying the one sitting upon the throne as creator, but Jesus Christ as the Lamb Redeemer. We are given there the content of their praise, blessing, honor, glory, and power. Uh, blessing, if you remember our uh, previous exposition of these terms, is probably something like uh, well-wishing, the, um, all of the creation is portrayed as wishing the king eternal well as he rides forward in victory. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Psalm 45 verse 4. They ascribe to him honor because of his place as the king. They ascribe to him glory because of the excellence of his person and power because of his right and ability to rule. When you add with that their blessed well-wishing, they have a great desire that his kingdom would be fully manifested and their misery thus relieved. The uh, duration of this ascription is forever and ever that he is worthy to be thus ever praised and he will be there will ever be uh, creatures uh, on and on to endless ages ascribing these glorious things to our God as we mentioned the object of worship here explicitly is the one sitting upon the throne and ruling over all and the Lamb, the Redeemer. Up to this point, if you remember what we said about the 
church and the angels, the explicit object of worship was the slain lamb. This is not to exclude the other persons of the Trinity, but rather he was the focus. His redeeming work was the focus of their worship. Now the explicit object is twofold, both the Father as Creator and Governor, and the Son as the Redeemer. And these are very much involved one with another. We shouldn't be surprised about this either. Turn back with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 the general context Paul has been talking about our responsibility to deal with one another in humility and lowliness of mind and he sets before us Christ himself as the preeminent example of this lowliness of mind that in spite of the fact that he was in the very form of God God of God, light of light, very God of very God, he um, was willing to set aside that glory that was native to him and veil it through incarnate flesh and the form of a servant, and was willing to humble himself for the good of his people, even to death, the death of the cross. We pick up with the tail end of that, verse 9. Wherefore, because of this work of humiliation, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to notice the relationship between these two texts in at least two ways. First of all, notice that the ascription of this glory to the slain lamb is universal. The inhabitants of heaven, the inhabitants of earth, and the inhabitants that dwell beneath the earth, perhaps the sea, is in view there. And every tongue is going to confess him to be Lord... But this is not to rob the Father of His glory, but rather to more greatly glorify the Father who had ordained this process and procedure, who out of His infinite and unsearchable love for His people had called His Son to this great redeeming work. So here Paul addresses an implicit example. If we thus glorify the Son, do we rob the Father of His glory? And he says, no, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We won't, we won't stay here. We did much with this in the first chapter. But I do want you to notice that the mediator Christ receives the same divine worship as the Father. This is a clear, and if men have but eyes to see it, a conclusive proof of his deity because none other is worthy to receive worship. And if you remember, we've already presented a proof that when we worship, the triune God is in view. Sometimes we might focus upon um, uh, the Father, 
or the Son or the Spirit because of particular roles and functions that they are portrayed as performing in the economy of redemption and that is altogether fine but ultimately we do not worship one to the exclusion of the other but we ever worship the triune God and finally verse 14 and the four beasts said Amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever the church is portrayed as having eyes to see the angelic creation and the lower creation all glorifying God the church has the eyes of faith to see God's glory in all of these things and it leads them in turn to glorify God once again because he is worthy they say Amen which is an affirmation it is so or even so let it be They see God's glory in the visible and in the invisible creation. They see him being glorified and they add their affirmation. That first affirmation is portrayed as coming from the living creatures, the ministers. And I do hope that this will ever be the petition, the first petition of our hearts, that God's name would be hallowed are treated as holy and with reverence in everything. And when I mean everything, I mean everything. That his glory is to be viewed in everything and his name treated as holy. So when we pick up the Bible and when we worship, obviously he is to be treated as glorious. But I mean even in the less obvious ways. When you... Uh, study rocks and trees and the way electrons orbit a nucleus and so on God is displaying his glory and if we have the eyes of faith we will see these things if I might say by way of digression this is the great fault of secular education if you've not learned to see God's glory in all of these things you've not learned to view any of them yet rightly nor have you viewed them yet, in their principal relation. It is a creature that is related to its creator and is a display of his glory. There's a very interesting book called Mathematics is God Silent. My wife once upon a time read to me while we were traveling traveling extracts from it most of the contemporary uh, complicated mathematics came from one driving principle Protestants had learned that God is glorified in everything and so it was researching how his glory was displayed in all of the things that he made and primarily it is a very large study of God's orderliness and wisdom It's a most remarkable thing that almost all of the created reality can be described in the orderliness of numbers. And he displays his glory in all of it. So most of it was derived by Christian people that were making a long study. How does God glorify himself in the way that planets orbit the sun and the orderliness of the doing of that? And so they would describe it in a mathematical way. Uh, formula and so on 
May God open our eyes so that we might see the glory that is so richly displayed all around us. Well, as I said, the living creatures see it and they add their Amen. And as we have seen throughout chapters 4 and 5, at that motion of the ministers of the church, the rest of the church follows. The 24 elders then fall down and worship the eternal God. I'd have you notice again, they are falling down once again as if there were no place more proper for them in their own estimation than to be at the feet of the Most High God. Remember that dynamic in chapter 4. God would set them upon thrones and put crowns upon their heads and they throw their crowns at His feet and fall down at His feet as if it was inappropriate for them to have any glory in His presence at all but would ascribe all to Him. And all of our... Worship, let us show ourselves uh, in the frame of a humble subjection to Him. And they worshipped Him. Remember, this is a spiritual view. They adored Him from their hearts. We saw a similar thing with the angels, didn't we, when it said that they cried out with loud voices. The fervency of their hearts was shown in the image of loud voices crying out concerning the glory of God. Here, um, same sort of thing, but different images. People falling down before the throne and worshiping and adoring from their hearts. I want to derive from this just one doctrine. The chief end of all things is the glory of God. If you have time this afternoon to take up a particular exercise, I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. You won't have to do it in much detail, but it is a lengthy proof that God is glorified in everything. What is the chief end of the work of creation? The glory of God. What is the chief end of God's providential government of all of the things that he has made? His own glory. What is his chief end in the punishment and judgment of the wicked? His glory. What is the chief end in his redeeming work? His glory. And it goes over and over again. And one of the ways that this is frequently highlighted is by means of his incomparability. Who is like the Most High creating? Who is like the Most High so wisely governing? It shows that his excellence is unparalleled and unequaled. And thus his glory is demonstrated. I tried to lift uh, just some of the passages, but he goes through, Isaiah goes through these things over and over again. And something of a cyclical pattern. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 25. What is the chief end of the creation? Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. 
He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of His might, for that He is strong in power. Not one faileth. This is a demonstration of His unparalleled excellence. There is none other that can do this creative work. Mighty in strength. Here his, his power is demonstrated as being unparalleled and unequaled. What is the chief end of his providence? Chapter 41, beginning with verse 1. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. There is a particular aspect of His providential deliverance that's in view here. Our God, through the control of providence, delivered Israel out of Babylonian captivity, not by their might, strength, wisdom, power, goodness, nothing, but by his own strength and providence. Now, once again, he declares himself as being unparalleled in his ability to do these things. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning. And this is a prophecy that um, that was 200 years before its actual fulfillment. As you read through these chapters, you'll see that this is in contrast to the idols. He said, if, uh, if these idols are gods, let them declare what's going to be. But who can do what I do? And in these passages, he's even going to call Cyrus, a man who would not be born for nearly 200 years. He calls Cyrus by name to the redeeming work to deliver his people out of their bondage in Babylon. What is the chief end of God's judgment to the wicked? Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holden my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs. I will make the rivers islands and I will dry up the pools. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, that say to the molten images, Ye are my gods. Hear ye deaf and look ye blind that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant? 
or death is my messenger that I send. Who is blind is he that is perfect, and blind is the Lord's servant, saying many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Now this is just one step removed. But God says in this judging work, He will magnify the law, which is a representation of His own righteousness and justice, and He will make the law honorable. So as He vindicates its claims by punishing wicked men in righteousness, He vindicates and magnifies His law, and in doing so glorifies Himself, magnifies His own justice. He is well pleased for His righteousness sake. And finally, uh, chapter 42, verse 5, God is greatly glorified in salvation. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for the light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare His praise in the islands. Notice here that uh, the Lord proclaims His glory as uh, the principal end of salvation and is jealous over the, that glory. He says that he will not share it with another. Another uh, clear and demonstrative evidence that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. God had said he would not share the glory of salvation with any other. He is jealous over it. And then we are called upon practically to sing and to praise and to give that glory that is due to his name. Again, I would encourage you to read these chapters in the afternoon hours as uh, the prophet goes through these things again and again. God glorified in creation, providence, judgment, and salvation. And that God's glory is the chief and principal end in all of these things as is right. It is right that it be so. 
a question occurs to me that I have uh, I have fielded from time to time. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, "God commends in us humility. Jesus Christ was humble, and yet." He is forever portraying himself as jealous over his glory and commanding all creatures to render unto that glory that is due to him. And so uh, the question comes, is God telling us to be selfless even while he himself is being selfish and self-centered? The problem with with the question itself is that there is no analogy we are to be humbled and abased before God because he is objectively, factually, the great one. And we are infinitely beneath him. And so we take our true and proper position and own it as it is. When we humble ourselves as creatures, and particularly as fallen creatures take shame to ourselves, we only do what is right and just, good and true. But the Most High, because He is the Most High, and that is a fact, ought not to treat Himself as being anything else than the Most High. And so there is no uh, comparison, there's no analogy between the two cases. You remember that the languages give to Him the glory that is due to His name. The general principle of justice here is that we give to everyone what is their due what is due to us is a low position in humility and shame what is due to him is all glory honor, power, might and dominion he is worthy, it is due to him but I digress I wanted to take from this just one use Let us cultivate a God-centered view of reality. One of the great uh, objects of religion is to teach us to view everything in a religious way and to have uh, communion with God in everything that takes place. Not just some things, but all things. And so we exercise ourselves so that we might learn what the Apostle means when he says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Romans chapter 11 verse 36. We remember earlier in Revelation, uh, both God and Jesus Christ Both the Father and the Son were portrayed as being the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last of all things. Paul's picture is even fuller. God is related to everything because he is the creator of him are all things. And his providential dominion is over all. So he preserves, governs, and even redeems Through him are all things. He upholds all things by the might of his power and is redeeming an elect church to himself and will eventually renew heaven and earth. And finally, to him are all things. He is our chief end. 
And the chief end of all of these things is that he would be glorified. To whom be glory forever. So we exercise ourselves. In some things this is easy. Well, comparatively easy, is it not? We would say that when we are reading the scripture and when we are worshiping God, that in those uh, contexts it is easier for us to keep God in our thoughts and to worship Him. I say comparatively because we yet have wandering thoughts and our minds are ever wandering away from the Most High to return to matter and mud. But uh, in other things, it is comparatively difficult. Are we able to see the uh, glory of God in the face of a crying baby after a night of sleeplessness? Can we see God in these things? See His glory displayed? Can we have communion with Him? Are our hearts and our thoughts ever being lifted up? When we are balancing the checkbook and trying to figure out where the $53 went, do we see God's glory in these things? Are we having communion with Him in these things? Adoring His providence and even its mysteries as we try to figure out how we have, uh, after careful attendance, ended up with unbalanced books. Can we see him in these things? Or when you're uh, changing diapers or scrubbing a sink or wondering how the shower came to look this way anyway, do we see God in these things? Just one example. If uh, termites are in your house, it's generally thought of as being a vexatious thing because they eat wood. But you should be very glad that they're out in the woods doing their job. And their organization and their ability performs a very important function in this fallen world. You don't want them performing that function in your house. But God is greatly glorified. If you have trouble seeing it, you're admonished by the Proverbs, are you not? Go away and consider the ant and his organization and how without rulers... He is able to accomplish so very much, so very industrious. So God's wisdom is displayed in all of these things. Can we see it? Do we have the eyes of faith to see it? And can we exercise ourselves to a discipline where we're ever attentive to it? It's one thing to make out a demonstration on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. It's another thing to attend to it. On a Tuesday afternoon, when there are so many other distracting things going on. But this is the chief end for which we have been made. Can you see God's glory in it? Do you see a display of His wisdom, His power, His justice, His goodness? And are you able to lift up your heart in those times in the enjoyment of God? Nothing less will do. In a former age, our forebears in the faith were reproached with two terms one will be familiar to us one unfamiliar they were called Puritans or precisionists because they endeavored this very thing what does God have to do with this can we live as Christians as self-conscious Christians in this even if it's 
eating and drinking and doing so to the glory of God. Indeed, that's the commandment of the scripture, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever ye do. Do all to the glory of God. So let us give our attention so that we might learn the meaning of the scripture when it says that the Lord hath made all things for himself. Let us pray together.